Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Hey family, any day you can talk barbecue is a great day and today is that day. This is episode two of season two, Living the Dream. In this season, I'll be chatting with some of the most successful barbecue entrepreneurs out there about the different types of businesses you can get into and what it takes to be successful. One of the most common businesses that barbecue heads move into is vending and catering, and in this episode, I get to chew the fat with Rob from Smokin' Hot and Saucy, a barbecue outfit based in Newcastle that is absolutely crushing it at the moment. We're going to get into Rob's background and how that helps him with his business, what you need to do to be successful as a catering outfit, and some of the hiccups he's faced along the way. So without further ado, let's carve off a slice and get stuck into it. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Big thanks go out to Jagged Woodfired for helping me bring you this episode. Buying a smoker can be confusing. Something for low and slow, something for roasting, a pizza oven, what about baking? The Jagged Wood-Fired Smoker does all of these things. The question is how? First, the entire smoker is fully insulated. The firebox is insulated with kiln-grade bricks and there are more on the cooking chamber floor, doubling as a pizza stone. The cooking chamber is then insulated with a 6cm or 2.5 inch insulation blanket. This means that the Jagged can get up to 600 degrees Fahrenheit in under 30 minutes, sit at low and slow temperatures using very little fuel, and will even sit well under 200 Fahrenheit for cold smoking. Jagged wants to make sure you have a very happy new year, and so until the end of December 2017, they're offering an exclusive discount for you Smoking Hot Confessions podcast listeners. Use the code word CONFESSIONS at checkout if buying online, or quote it when dealing with them direct for 15% off your purchase price. Head on over to jaggedoutdoorovens.com, spelled J-A-G-R-D, to learn more. Alrighty, Rob, thank you very much for joining me in the confessional today, mate. The first thing I do have to ask you is, what was the last thing that you barbecued? Uh, Sunday, we cooked up um, four briskets, uh, three pork butts and four lamb shoulders for an event uh, in Singleton. Uh, that was the last thing I've smoked. Um and then I haven't touched the I haven't touched the barbecue since then. Oh, rightio. And what was that event in in Singleton? Uh, Fiberfest. Um, it was like uh, New South Wales, um, like heaps of yarn and wool and fabric. Um, a lot of old ladies and and uh, some younger generation getting into the knitting the knitting scene. And uh, it was just a it was sort of an easier event for us after we had a, a pretty packed three days before that. So we wanted an easier event, and, um, and we had a bit of a relaxed Sunday just um, serving people to some um, some ladies that were coming to buy some wool and, and talk about knitting. Ah, oh, rightio. See, when you when you said Fiberfest, I was picturing something like, you know, a, a, a muesli conference or um, bowel, bowel maintenance group or something. Yeah, no, this is all like crocheting and knitting and, and, uh, and sewing. Yeah, so um, something completely left field to what we normally do. Um, but certainly uh, it was a good event and, and uh, we'd love to do it again next year. Yeah, right. Okay. And so how, how did the uh, how did they like the, the smoked meats? Yeah, it was good. Uh, really well received. Um, you know, one of our slogans is you don't need teeth to eat my beef. So it, um, <laughs> it worked out pretty well. Oh, that's hilarious. 
<laughs> so, mate, before we get into uh, into smoking hot and saucy, can you tell me how this all started for you? What's your your barbecue origin story? Um, well, the first couple of times I, I tried brisket and pulled pork, I was in Canada, and to tell you the truth, I hated it. Um, it wasn't until I met my wife in Canada and we sort of moved to Texas, um, where she's from, and then. Uh, I think it was a Saturday night. My father-in-law, my future father-in-law, Melvin, said we're going to have a barbecue tomorrow. And I thought, oh yeah, a couple of snags, some steaks on the on the on the barbecue. And then he woke me up at three o'clock in the morning. and We started the smoker, and uh, I just fell in love with it. You know, tending the fire and prepping the meat. And so I learnt off my father-in-law, uh, Melvin Young, and then off my uncle-in-law, uh, Johnny Lee Johnson Young. He he um he sort of competes in the Louisiana barbecue circuit and around the Texas circuit, but he also caters. He also um, cooks on a, on a barbecue trailer, uh, does a lot of events and sort of intermingles the Cajun style of cooking from Louisiana and, and then the Texas barbecue style with the with the brisket and pork ribs. And um, so I sort of learned off those two blokes. And when we moved back to Australia, I just couldn't find any good barbecue not to say there wasn't good barbecue here. I just couldn't find it. You know, I just um, you'd go to places and they'd say they had American barbecue or Texas barbecue, and um, you know, the first thing I'd say was, "Where's the smoker?" You know, and and there wouldn't be one. So in the last sort of four or five years, uh, it's sort of grown in Australia. And about three or four years ago, my wife and I had a dream. That, you know, why don't we start something up ourselves? And a lot of our friends. Um, said you should you know you love cooking you, you can cook you can you can obviously barbecue um why don't you do something so we did and then we um then we started our first market stall in mudgy oh and what yeah oh very cool very yeah. cool yeah so so as a um as a caterer or or vendor uh do you ever get sick of barbecue what do you what do you cook at home for yourself no, I don't get sick of barbecue. I don't get sick of cooking it either. Um, I do because I cook the same stuff predominantly and then I'll add a few different things in each week. Like, um, you know, I cook brisket and pulled pork because that's one of my biggest sellers. Um, but then I'll add beef ribs or pork ribs and I'll add lamb, a chicken, maybe some turkey breast. Um, you know, we change up our sausage every two weeks um, when we're going. I don't get sick of eating it, but I just taste my own. Um, I prefer to eat other people's barbecue. Um, you know, it gives me a comparison. Um, and, I, and I guess when I cook so much, I sit there, I smell it, and I basically eat the smoke for, you know, up to 18 to 20 hours before I start serving. And so when I get home, um, we sort of eat a lot of pasta, salads. Um, we do steak on my little baby Weber. Um, I don't know, we try and do food that's sort of not related to Texas barbecue and uh, and sort of steer clear of that if we can. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. Now, something you just said just sort of triggered something in my mind there. You said that um, that, uh, that that you like to eat other people's barbecue. Now, I find that when I go out, if I see something on a menu that says, you know, smoked ribs or brisket or something, I just have to try it. Are you like that? Like when you go out to somewhere and you, and you uh, see something on a menu, yeah. do you just have to give oh. it a crack? I'll, I'll do a bit of background first, Ben, to tell you the truth. Um, I'll have a I'll have a look around and and see what they've how they're cooking it. I might go into the kitchen and, and speak to the chef or, or speak to the the uh, 
um, the server and, and, and find out how it's been cooked. Do they have a smoker? Um, has it been done in the oven or has it been done, you know, um, uh, the traditional way? And and then I sort of make my decision on that. But to tell you the truth, more often than not, I'll probably steer clear of it. Um, I I like to eat Texas barbecue. Um, you know, I've, I've been around America, um, but my love is Texas barbecue, um, always has been. Um, you know, I, I like the Memphis. I like the Memphis style. I like the Tennessee style. Um, and and everywhere you go, there's all different styles. But in Texas, there's about 15 different styles in Texas alone, depending on whether you're in the northeast or the south, um, where you get barbecue uh, with the Mexican influence, or you go around the Austin, you know, the yeah you know, the high country there, the hill country, sorry, um, which is all about the brisket and um, and post oak and. I don't know. I, I love Texas barbecue, and I like the other styles, so I'll probably steer clear of it at restaurants, and um, and generally um, go for something a little bit different. Because um, I like to expand my knowledge too when I'm cooking, so I like to see what else is out there, so I can try and replicate that when I'm at home. Yeah, right. So you just um, mentioned that there are like 15 different types of barbecue within Texas. Are you able to sort of? zoom out one level and for the listeners who are not familiar just sort of give us a brief overview of what makes texas style barbecue different to the other styles well texas style barbecue has um a lot of different influences as i said down in south texas you've got that mexican influence that barbecue um they're cooking it in the ground um around the hill country um a lot of german influence with their sausage um and their curing of meats um, and then you go up into the, the northeast there, and you know, it's all about the hot links. Um, and barbecue in Texas is a Sunday after church meal. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of served, um, you know, from 10 a.m. in the morning um, until they're sold out. So generally, people on the weekends they'll go on a Sunday, um, uh, have you know, have their church have their family get together and go out to their favourite barbecue joint or they go home and have barbecue at home, which has been prepared all night, um, you know, by the blokes and, and, and the ladies that do the sides. It's, it's all about family, you know, and, and that's what I love about Texas barbecue. Um, that's how I learnt. Um, I learnt because it was a family gathering, you know. Um, if the family was coming over, we were going to barbecue and we were going to do ribs and brisket. Um, and that was just pretty much a staple. And you know, all the sides that I do um, on the food bus or out of the catering trailer are all Texas recipes that have been handed down to me through the family from Texas. Um, I've, you know, I've developed a few of them and, and changed a few of them a little bit, but I've tried to keep the essence of what it is. Um, and and that's that it's a it's a family meal, and that sort of shines through in some of our catering as well. We we do a lot of family style gatherings. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's family coming together and eating, whether it's your favourite barbecue joint or you're uh, in your backyard. And I think in the last probably five to six years, you've seen a change, especially around the Austin area um, in Texas where, you know, people are lining up, you know, for Franklin's, La Barbecue, Friedman's, uh, you know, Micklewaite Craft Meats. Um, they're all basing Austin and they're all sort of um, these new hip, trendy joints um, you know, Franklin started out in a barbecue food trailer, now has a restaurant. La Barbecue isn't a barbecue food trailer. They're moving into a restaurant shortly. 
Micklewaith Craft Meats are still in a trailer. Um, Friedman's, they've bought an old whiskey house and they're turned into a barbecue joint. And those places, they're just real crafty, real neat, and people, instead of, you know, um, going to church and, and then um, going home and eating with their families, that's still happening. But the younger generation that's getting into it, that's into their craft beer, into their craft meats, are now going out and lining up for hours um, to sample some of this goodness. Yeah, right. That's an interesting link too. Um, you you keep sort of circling back to barbecue and family. That's a that's one of the things that I love about barbecue as well. And I'm I'm interested that you've sort of brought the uh, the link to um, to the church into it as well. Because uh, one thing I noticed when I was in uh, Texas and Oklahoma was um, just how strong that that part of the culture is. Now, I do have one question though, and is that if barbecue is served after church, is just is that just so that fathers have an excuse to skip church? Because that's what I do. <laughs> maybe, maybe, mate. Maybe that's it. I don't know. That's exactly what I do here. <laughs> yeah, that um, it possibly is. I don't know. To tell you the truth, Ben. Um, but it certainly um, you know, when I was there, I did a party uh, when I was in Texas back there in the summer, and I was talking to a guy who he, he loves smoking pork shoulders, and um, he does a completely different way than I do it, and, and everyone's got their own style and own techniques, and. You know, he's doing his pork shoulders to up to 23 hours because um, he really likes the smoke flavour. And he'd do them um, – he smokes them both on a Saturday and then reheats on a Sunday after church. You know, that's his that's his thing. And, um, yeah, you know, it's about family. Um, you know, your family's coming together uh, in Texas and, and generally when that happens, you're going to have brisket and, and some form of ribs or, or hot links and, and that's what they do. Awesome. Now, you not only cook commercially, but you also compete. So how many comps have you been in this year? Oh, I think I was trying to think before. I think we've done six comps, mate, this year. Um, uh, yeah, we've done – we started off with Giracle at the start of the year. Then we did Wollongong, Melbourne, Gloucester. Um, maybe five, sorry. Um, yeah, Melbourne, Gloucester, and uh, Bangalore. Yeah, five. Didn't I see you at, um, at at Burley as well? Yeah, we're at Burley, but we weren't competing. We were um, we were vending out of the bus. Ah, right, uh, right. That's what it was. Originally, we were going to be up at Burley for um, for competing, and then uh, and then Greg gave us a call and said, "Could we bring the bus up?" Which we did, and um, we just thought we'd concentrate on selling food to the public and, and not compete. At Wollongong, we did both. We competed and and uh, served food to the public, and uh, that was a good weekend at the Wollongong. It was a great weekend at Burley too. It was a good turnout, and the weather was great. How do you choose between what you serve to the public and what you give to the judges? Oh, generally, I um, my my catering or vending food is sort of completely different to to your comp food. Um, you know, generally speaking, my rubs are the same or very similar. Um, but the end product, how I treat the end product is, is quite different. Um, my catering brisket, you know, sometimes depending on the feel, but I'd hazard a guess that the, the internal temperature for my vending or catering brisket would be anywhere from 203 to 209, um, but I generally just probe it, um, whereas I'll pull my um, uh, competition brisket off around that 198 to 200 mark um, and let it rest for a good couple of hours. Um, my vending brisket can anywhere, rest anywhere between five to six hours in a Canberra or an Esky um, before it's served. Um, 
and you know it retains all its moisture and juices but certainly the end product is completely different you know you, you you sort of your clients when you're vending or catering they want fall off the bone ribs and they want tender meat whereas when you do that competition as you know you know you need that bite off the bone uh, clean bite off the bone you don't want the meat falling off the bone uh, and with the brisket you want it to pull apart under really less tension you don't want it falling apart mm. um so it's a it's sort of a different different game but it's still good fun to compete i love being i love being on the competition circuit yeah so speaking of the competition circuit what's been the highlight for you this year uh, i've had a couple of highlights this year um first and foremost we've got grand champions at gloucester uh, it's a great little comp um run by dion and the team up there uh we've got reserve grand champion at Giracle. that was another another highlight that was my first comp where I, um, my wife and I, she helped me out just to run the smoker, but basically I was, I was pretty solo um, for that comp. It was my first comp by myself um, doing everything and, and was managed to pull a reserve grand champion behind Badass Barbecue, which was good. Um, but I think the highlight every time I go out, regardless of the results, Ben, is um, just catching up with some, some barbecue fraternity and, and the barbecue family that is the, the competition circuit. I think the ABA has done a great job of getting it all together. And uh, just a bunch of like-minded individuals that want to go and have fun. Yeah, that is the uh, the best part of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So, how do you think your comp cooking influences your catering, or is it vice versa, or at all? Well, I guess how my um, it'd be definitely my catering cooking would influence my comp cooking. Um, you know, I don't. I don't get the opportunity to practice at home um, competition barbecue, but what I do get to practice is a lot of flavour combinations. Um, as I said, I try and um, I try and change things up a little bit um, every so often. So I, uh, you know, my standard brisket would just be salt and pepper and out of the bus, and I've got a, a pork rub that I use all the time um, out of the bus. But how we serve it when we're doing pop up restaurants or we're doing something a bit more formal for, for a client. Um, the sides and the flavour profiles that we look and go forward with, sauces that we put with it, all those things help me when I go back to competition barbecue because I can sit there and go, okay, this worked, that didn't work. Um, and the biggest influence it has is I just know how my smokers work. Um, I run two Texas offset smokers and um, I just know – what size timber to put in to get what temperature I want, where the door needs to be. Um, I really know the hot spots and the cold spots in my smokers um, because I use them so much. And that's probably the best thing at competition barbecue is just knowing what your pit's doing so you can time everything. Right. So the the, the familiarity then? Yeah, that would be the biggest thing, would be the familiarity with my, with my smokers, mate. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So when, when you are catering or vending, um, what sort of events do you cover and what's your favourite? Uh, we do all sorts of events. Um, we, when we first started out, we were doing a lot of morning markets. Um, used to probably do eight markets a month um, when we first um, kicked off full-time last year in September. Um, before that, we will probably doing two or three markets a month. Then we moved into a lot of private catering um, then we got into a couple of new music festivals. Um, we've done a couple of barbecue competition festivals this year. Um, but more and more, um, 
my favourite would have to be the local um, foodie events around Newcastle and Maitland. Um, we've got a really good following at the moment. A lot of locals come out that are repeat customers over and over again. Um, we have a good chat with them and they have a good chat with us and, and to the point that they've gone out and purchased um, their own equipment now and they're always hitting me up for information and, and, and we talk barbecue and it's it's really growing in the Hunter Valley um, and that's what I love about it. I, that, I love those events that are, you know, 500, 600 people, they're a little bit slower and you get to talk um, and communicate with your with your um, with your clients. Um, they're really really good ones. And if there's some music pumping, you listen to some music, have a few beers, and, and really relax. Um, but the the big ones are good too. Like down in uh, Wollongong when we cooked for the um, Crafted Live down there, that was a great great experience. Being on both sides of the fence, competing and and vending, uh, the beers were great, the music was good, and, and the people were friendly. Mate, that sounds like a perfect weekend out to me. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up if you're scared anyway. <laughs> so, what's the um, the most popular item on your menu? Oh, brisket, mate. If I've got brisket on the menu, um, as soon as I sell out a brisket, the the amount of um, people lining up certainly changes. If I've got if I've got my brisket on the menu, it's usually 30, 40 people deep um, the entire time. As soon as I take brisket off the menu, I'm, I'm five to ten people deep. Um, it goes pretty good. I, I can't, I can't cook enough most of the time. Um, and my second, second biggest seller will be beef ribs, mate. If I got beef ribs on the menu, um, they generally go like hotcakes. I did an event. We did six hundred odd serves, uh, flavors of mudgy there a couple of uh, weeks ago. I had a hundred beef ribs on the menu, and they sold out in the first forty-five minutes. Wow. Yeah. It, uh, it goes it goes pretty quick. That's incredible. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's been pretty good in terms of the following. But at the end of the day, you've got to put out a good product, and if you can keep the consistency in your product, um, people keep coming back and people will buy it. Yeah, right. And speaking of the consistency of that of that product, um, do you source your beef locally from the Hunter Valley, or do you uh, use suppliers from other regions? Um, I, I use my I use brisket from Costco. Um, uh, I use Costco brisket and Costco pork butts. Um, I've got a pretty good relationship with them down there at uh, Casula and now Marsden Park. Now it's a bit closer to us uh, in Sydney. Um, I, when I first started out a couple of years ago, uh, probably five years ago when I first started in Australia, I couldn't find good brisket. Um, I'd go to the butcher and ask for brisket and I'd get something off a yearling steer or a yearling heifer and um, it just wasn't – there was no meat in it. There was no real point. There was no fat. There was no um, marbling. And it wasn't what I was used to when I was over in Texas. And then we found briskets at Costco, and I've tried a lot of the other briskets, and, and there's some really good briskets out there. Um, but for the price, um, when you're catering and, and the quantities that I'm doing, um, I don't have to charge exorbitant amounts um, for my sandwiches or for my meat plates. Um, you know, I, I do a sandwich for $12, um, and at some places I'll do it for $10. Um and I, I have noticed that other events, other barbecue caterers and barbecue vendors are up around that $15 to $16, $18 mark for a sandwich. Um, now, I'm trying to make it viable for my clients as well as profitable for myself. And um, so I like to use the Angus grain-fed brisket from Costco. Um, I think it's a great brisket. 
and and I use that for my comp brisket too, and I've got call ups on that as well. Wow! So what is it that that makes your brisket so unique? Oh, nothing. I, I don't know um, to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> I, um, it's it's something that I sort of I don't know stumbled upon, I suppose, but. Um, I use a heavy mix of salt and pepper, 50-50, um, quite heavy on that. Um, I, I trim it back um, to leave a nice fat cap on it, um, trim all the fat off the underside, and then I, I cook it with a hot fire, 250-275, and I allow the meat to do its thing. Um, I'll spritz if it needs spritzing. Um, I won't if it doesn't. Um, yeah, I, I just let it go, and it's time. I think Ben, time's probably the biggest key. And I, because I cook so much meat in both cookers that they're both pretty much full all the time. Um, it's just time. You can't rush it. Um, you've got to leave yourself time at the end of the day. That if the event opens at ten o'clock, you need to have all that meat off. You know, at six a.m. And, and resting, ready to go. You can't be trying to finish briskets at 10 o'clock still in the smoker and then bring them out and try and serve them because there's no rest period there. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned is just give myself six, four to six hours of resting time for all my meat um, and then and then serve it. Um, that's that's probably the, the biggest thing for me. Mm. And with so many briskets that you do cook in a week, are you fat side up or fat side down? Uh, I'm fat side up, mate. Um, uh, that's the way I learned. In Texas, um, I haven't really changed too much there. Um, my father-in-law now thinks my brisket's better than his, which is always a good compliment. <laughs> you you do have to try and keep him on side, though. Yeah, well, he's, he reckons his pork ribs are still better than mine, so he, he reckons he's still up on me. Oh, fair enough. But uh, I, I'd say I, no, I try to keep it as traditional as possible um, from what I learned when I was in Texas. Um you know, you, you can read a lot about what different people do over there and a lot of the people that are the celebrity, I guess, cooks, um, what they're doing. Um, I learn off um, some backyard caterers and, and backyard family cooks and, and they were fat side up, mate. Point towards the fire, fat side up and um, uh, one uses foil and one uses butcher's paper and, uh, yeah. Do you find there's a difference between foil and butcher's paper? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Um I use I use butcher's paper uh, in the summer, and I'll use foil in the winter, um, just to help me out because it's so cold in Hunter Valley in the winter. I don't really want to be staying up too much in the night. Um, but yeah, I think foil foil will push you through the stall and get your brisket finished in probably three three and a half hours after you get to that stall mark, about one sixty five. Um, butcher's paper, you're probably looking another five or six hours after you get to that stall mark, so you probably add another three hours on your cook time. And then the end result with um, butcher's paper is you'll still get that nice crispy bark um, if that's what you're after. Um, I, I can still get a bark with foil, but what I tend to do is when I take my briskets off, I'll let them steam off and cool. So I open the foil up, let them steam off and cool a little bit before I put them in an esky or a cambro. And then before I cut them for service, if I've got enough time, I'll pull them out and leave them on the cutting board for about 20 minutes just to – let that bark form back up a little bit before I slice them and, and get them on the sandwiches or on a meat plate. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Very nice. So, mate, where is uh, Smoking Hot and Saucy headed in the future? Well, we, um, we're we heading to Newcastle, actually. Um, right now, we're still 
uh, mobile vending um, with our trailer and, uh, and and the bus. Um, we've parked the bus up the last couple of weeks, um, getting some stuff done to it, and and then. Uh, but we're going to look at setting up permanently um, in Newcastle. So we've just um, leased a block of land um, down there. Um, I won't give away where it is just yet, but it's um, in an up and coming neighbourhood. Um, it's not in your in your trendy neighbourhoods. It's not. It's a, it's certainly an up and coming neighbourhood. Um, we tried to find something that was a bit eclectic and a bit Austin, if you like. Um, and uh, and what we want to try and do is bring an Austin style venue to Newcastle um, and really bring Texas Barbecue with an Austin venue to Newcastle. So hopefully in the next three or four weeks um, we get some movement on it. Um, we've got a DA in with the council, Newcastle Council, um, and we're waiting to hear back on, on where we sit with it at the moment. Um, and then once that happens, um, hopefully by end of November, early December, we're in and we're getting ready to open. And, um, and uh, yeah, it'd be good. Looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Newcastle's my uh, my university town, so I'm going to be racking my brain now for the next couple of weeks trying to work out where you are from those clues you've just given. Yeah, well, um, I, uh, I, do, I went to uni in Newcastle too, and I love the towns. Uh, my dad used to live down there, and I grew up in the Hunter Valley. And I don't know, it's just changed so much um, in the last couple of years, and you see some of the, the things they're doing down there um, with those um, outlying neighbourhoods that are sort of – that are – you know, what they've done on Derby Street and what they've done in Beaumont Street, Hamilton, and those sorts of things over the last 10, 15 years, um, I just see it as really growth area and really growth city. And um, hopefully we can be at the forefront of uh, Texas barbecue or American barbecue, if you want to call it that, in Newcastle. There's already a couple of joints doing it um, down there. Um, as I said, we're going to we're gonna stick true to our roots and do Texas barbecue with a little bit of um, Cajun influence sometimes and a little bit of Mexican influence with a few things, but... Certainly, we run Texas Offset Smoker and, and brisket pork with beef and, uh, and, and, and pulled pork will be on the menu every week. This is Tuffy Stone, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. If you're looking to get behind an Australian company that gets behind Australians, you need to check out Pitt Brothers Barbecue. They're a Brisbane-based business that are known for supporting our returned servicemen and women. They have three pre-blended rubs and 15 individual ingredients, making it super easy for you to create your own unique taste sensation. My personal favourite is the rosemary, lemon and sea salt rub. It's sensational on chicken wings with a sweet barbecue sauce. They also stock premium Gigi lump charcoal, which is grown and cooked in Queensland. While 2017 has been a big year, 2018 is going to be even bigger. They're launching a custom-designed offset smoker, three premium gravies, and are working with competition teams to develop some special new rub blends, such as Porkapalooza by the Smokin' Sappers. You can keep up with all the Pit Brothers news on Facebook and Instagram by following at PitBroBBQ. Right now, they're offering an exclusive deal for you Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. Head on over to pitbrothersbarbecue.com.au, that's P-I-T-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-B-Q, and use the word confessions at checkout for a 10% discount. Once again, use confessions at checkout to get your 10% discount. Okie dokie, Rob, the second segment of this episode is all about catering and vending. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of being a caterer, but first I do want to take it back a step. So 
We all dream of telling the boss to shove it and going into business for ourselves, but you've actually done exactly that. What was your background before smoking hot and saucy? Uh, I was a coal miner. Um, growing up in the Hunter Valley, um, I went away to boarding school and it was always I was going to come back and get an apprenticeship in the coal mines, which I did. Um, I'm an electrician by trade. Um, then I sort of moved through the ranks and got into management, um, did my engineering degree at Newcastle Uni, um, and then I became sort of a, a department manager um, or a superintendent, if you will, um, out at Mudgee at two coal mines out there. And then I got to a point where I just sort of – I used to love going to work. I used to, and then I, I started cooking, doing markets and doing private events and catering people's parties. And I didn't love going to work anymore. I, I sort of fell out of love with coal mining. And then my extracurricular company or business, if you will, in Smoking Hot and Saucy was getting in the way of me going to work or work was getting in the way of me doing Smoking Hot and Saucy. Yeah. So, I decided um, we went away to America, and before we left, we did um, the Burley Barbecue Competition last year, and we're up in Queensland for two weeks on vacation before it, and we found a bus and that we liked, and we thought, well, let's go have a look, went and had a look at it, and we ended up buying it, and that was the catalyst. As soon as we bought the bus and we sent it to Van Diemen's um, Food Vans in Brisbane, um, that was the catalyst for me to working out how am I going to get out of going to my real job and just do this full time. When I was in America, uh, the company I worked for was going to do an oil structure change. Um, I happened to ring my boss up and say, well, can you make sure I'm not in that oil structure? Um, he said, okay. He, um, and I uh, and basically, yeah, went from there. I, I took the redundancy and um, invested everything I had um, into this. And, um, you know, we've been going strong now for 14 months and We've got bookings into October, November next year for events and, and, and private functions. Um, we're moving into obviously the the, the lot down in um in New, in Newcastle, so we're sort of still expanding the business and still growing it. Um, still a lot of capital investment, but um, yeah, it's certainly been a big sea change. And that was what happened, mate. I, I just sort of fell out of love with my old job and fell in love with what I was doing on the side, and it became a real job. Oh, you very much so live in the dream. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm. So how, how how do you feel your background has helped you run a successful business? Well, I used to do a lot of budgeting, uh, a lot of man management, um, a lot of planning, um, a lot of forecasts um, with my old job in terms of where we're going to be next month, where, where's our 12-week plan. What that in essence has given me is the opportunity to, to really – forecast where we're going to be in six months in terms of costing, income, um, capital investment, um, what labour we need, um, uh, what events we want to try and get into and making sure we've got events to go to. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than having all this equipment and, and having nowhere to cook on a weekend. Um, so, you know, just, just ensuring that we've got somewhere to go and cook. Um, we worked out very early on in the piece when you work for yourself and you cook for the public or you cook for events, you've got to have opportunities to go and cook for people, otherwise you make no money. No one's going to pay to sit at home. Um, so it's just given us the opportunity in terms of really getting a plan together and, and sticking to that plan on where we're going to be um, in 12 to, to, to six months' time, you know, what events we're going to get into. And then 
it's given me the, I suppose, verbiage and, um, and confidence to deal with different councils. Um, you know, I work across a lot of different councils, so um, I've got no reservations about being challenged by a council and I've got no reservations on challenging councils and doing it in a professional manner. Um, so it's helped me out there too. Yeah, I think um, dealing with councils must be quite frustrating. Being able to do so in, uh, in, as you phrased it, in a professional manner would be, I guess, one of the most important parts of the job that a lot of people just wouldn't uh, wouldn't sort of think of, would it? Well, the biggest thing I found is we have councils, we have members of the council now ringing us up to do jobs for them and 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 getting us into events that we didn't know about because of that professional attitude that we try and take to those councils. Um, I think if you fight with councils, um, all you end up doing is getting on that, that bottom list of, oh, we don't want to deal with them. They're, they're too hard basket to deal with. Whereas if you keep it as a professional level, you know, they, they ring you and say, oh, this event's on. You should really contact this person. that They've just come and seen the council and away we go. Um, and, and that's the relationship we have with um, a couple of councils now, which is really good. So you're saying that you catch more flies with barbecue sauce? That's it, mate. <laughs> all righty so at this point let's let's clear up a little bit of terminology or, or verbiage as you said what's the difference between vending and catering oh to us vending is our at-risk events so vending is we know that um we're going to take a risk by purchasing all of our food and ingredients and, and firewood and all of our costs and go and try and sell pub food to the public whereas catering um to me is they're quoted they're quoted events so we can cost them out and um we know exactly what our profit margin is going to be and we we can then um ensure that we make money to me vending is a risk um um you never know um if it's going to rain you never know if people are not going to show up um it's always it's like street trading. You, you you can set your bus up on the side of the road and say you're going to be there, but unless people come and find you, um, you know you don't make any money. Hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of uh, being like a like a risk or or low risk type uh, type difference. That's interesting. I think um, I think vending. You know, you've got your bigger festivals where you know you're guaranteed you're going to have um, you know like uh, day on the green. Um, for instance, you know there's going to be several thousand people there, um, regardless whether it's raining or not. People are going to come out. They've bought tickets. They're they're paid for accommodation. They're going to come. Um, it's when you have events like a food and food and wine affair, for instance, and um, it's a dollar coin donation to get in, um, and then the sun comes out and they go to the beach, or it rains and they stay home because it's raining. Um, those events are very, very hard to take because you do invest a lot of money. The margins aren't fantastic. Um, whereas if you go for a quoted event where you've got a wedding for 150 people, you know they've paid you on a per-person basis. You know how much food you need to prepare. You can cost it all out and make sure and ensure you make money out of it. Um, that, that That's the difference to me from vending and catering, and that's how we've um, developed within our business um, portfolio. Yeah, right. So, so what happens if you do go to an event and then no one turns up? How do you how do you handle the fallout from that? Oh, well, it's happened. Um, we've had a couple of events uh, that haven't really been um, what the the promoter or or uh, the event organizer has has um, sort of 
uh, guaranteed or insured. But uh, generally speaking, we have some insurances for, for those sorts of things. And for the bigger events, we'll take out insurance on our um, on our uh, input cost, I guess. But it's a it's just a risk, mate. That's a risk you take. You know, there's nothing much you can do about it. Um, we try and save as much of um, the food and produce as possible. Um, but as you know, it um, a lot of it isn't isn't um, isn't savable once it's cooked or or you coleslaw. You can't reuse it once it's um, out of the bag or once you've cut it up and prepped it. But we've also got a pretty good um, response in terms of if I've had, if I've had whole briskets or whole pork shoulders left over. I'll um, contact a couple of my regular clients and I'll buy them off my hands. So I don't lose out too much, but we have had a couple of events that have been complete failures. The majority have been very much big successes. Right. Now, you mentioned that there was um, that that you can take out insurance on events. Did I understand that right? Well, what you can do, um, you can actually take out, um, if you can find an insurer that will do it for you, um, you can, and, and generally it's usually private um, investors. Um, will we'll back you for an event and you use their money. Um, so say V8 supercars, for instance, and my input was going to be $60,000, um, I could get insurance on that $60,000, yeah. Oh, fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, it is. The premiums are pretty high. Like, it's, it's not it's not cheap. No. But, yeah, that's, yeah there's, there's business insurance for that. You just got to uh, find the right person that wants to do it and find the backer that's willing to pull out the money. Oh, fascinating! Mm. All right. So, just on this on this topic, then, what um, what sort of laws and insurances do people need to consider if they're looking to get into catering or vendoring? Well, um, the New South Wales government, in their wisdom, gave all the um, food regulation laws back to local councils. Um, so, first and foremost, you'll need to have a food safety supervisor, um, and that's a certification you can do online. Um, We've got a couple now that we can rely on within our within our staff mix. Um, it's a couple of hundred bucks, and it takes a couple of hours to do it. Um, I'll ask you a series of questions, and you and you basically get a certificate. Um, so every time that you vend food to the public, you have to have a food safety supervisor um, on site. It doesn't have to be in the van or in the marquee, just to be on site or contactable. Um, and then we have uh, our business insurance. We have all our vehicles insured, our equipment's insured. Um, and then we have our $20 million liability insurance, which is basically you, you require that at most events or most councils to um, provide products to the public. Right. So that's like if, if someone, uh, you know, chokes on a burger or something. Yeah. Or, you know, if food poisoning or chokes on a burger. Yep. Oh, righty. Cool. So when moving from the backyard to a commercial operation is it as simple as just scaling everything up nah nah we we um that was one of the hardest things when we first started um the equipment when we first cooked at home just in the backyard compared to what we required to go and cook um down in the markets just even a local market a three by three marquee um was unbelievable um you know the the containers the the buckets the um hand washing station um three sides on the marquee which i'd never had before i didn't know i had to have it you know we went to our first market and had to duck down to bunnings and buy three sides of the marquee because i didn't know i needed that oh wow yeah those sorts of things 
um, the equipment required at home to cook one brisket compared to the equipment required to rest six. Um, it, it is scaling it up in, in a short form, but it's a, a quite a, an investment to go and buy stuff. You can get it over time, um, but the hardest thing I found was just finding suppliers because I'd never been in this, in this business before. I didn't do an apprenticeship and, and, and work in a kitchen where we got a wholesale vegetable guy and a wholesale meat guy and a wholesale chicken guy um, come in every week who I liaised with or I spoke to. Um, so we had to go and find all those suppliers and find all um, contained suppliers and, and our, our wooden knives and forks and all those things we had to go and establish um, relationships with. Um, we never never knew where to start, and that was probably the biggest growing pains for us is that a lot of the times we were paying premium dollar for things um, because we didn't realise, oh, well, if you just get it delivered, it's a lot cheaper. Um, you know, we spent the first 12 months cutting our own coleslaw because um, uh, we thought, okay, well, we spoke to a couple of people. They couldn't do it, so we gave up trying to get someone to do it for us, and then we found the person who was actually delivering us all of our fruit and veg oh, we can actually do that for you. So the person that was delivering our fruit and veg could actually cut our coleslaw for us exactly how we wanted it. Oh, fantastic. So it just gave us more time in our week. Um, but those are the things that um, we learnt pretty quickly, but it did take time. And from the backyard operation to a commercial operation, whether it be a local market, whether it be private catering for events, it's just how much to cook. Um I think we all make the mistake when we're in the backyard operation cooking for 10 people. We overcook. You know, we cook ribs, we cook pulled pork, we do a whole brisket, and all of a sudden we get all this leftover meat. Um, you know, n- nothing worse than going to a wedding of 100 people and feeding the first 65 and going, well, I'm out of meat. Um, <laughs> that would not go down well. You've you really got to understand, um, you know, cook factors in terms of when you cook a brisket, how much weight's it going to reduce by. Um, how much yield you're going to get out of a lamb shoulder or a pork shoulder um, from when it's when it's not cooked? Um, those sorts of things are, are learning curves that we we did over time, but certainly, um, you know, you can uh, you can do it. It's just it's not just about scaling up. There's a there's a whole lot of things that need to go on in between, um, like getting in contact with your local councils to ensure that you're going to cover off on all the health and safety and the food environmental um, aspects of what you're trying to do. Ensure you have the correct setup, the right tables, the right tablecloths, um, the right food handling, food storage. Um, some councils are really picky about how you wash your hands. Some councils are really picky about how, how you store your cutlery so they handle side up. Each council has their own thing they look for. Um, the most thorough council we dealt, dealt with at the moment was Burley Heads Council. <laughs> They were very, very thorough um, to the point that I was like, wow. You know, they, they asked me questions like, who does my pest control um, in your storage and stuff like that? And up there, that's a requirement. They have a pest that their um, temporary food vendors have a pest contract in place that someone comes around and checks all their, their rat poisons and stuff like that. Whereas down here, I'd never been asked that question before in, in the first 12 months. So um, it certainly was a left field one. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So, that business with the with the uh, pest control does that go to what you were saying before about environmental considerations? Because it it seems logical that there would be lots of food safety regulations, but uh, I hadn't thought about environmental regulations before. 
Well, that it, it, it does go with your environmental regulations, but that all comes under your food your food regulations as well, ensuring that you know your your um your containers are stored without cockroaches and, and those sorts of things and rats and and mice and, and crawling all over them. Um, they're secure up off the ground. Um, you know, there's no moisture and dust that can get in on top of them. Um, and as moisture and dust is more of your environmental um, issues, um, water, you know, you've, you've got to have, if you're out on a farm and you're using your potable water out of your tank, you've got to have your tank water tested and a certificate to show that it's been tested. And it's got to happen every six months. Whereas if you're on town water um, and you can prove you're on town water, um, that's fine. Um, that's okay. Um so that those things certainly, those things certainly um, have to take into consideration when setting up from home. Yeah, right. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, so, when people are planning their budgets to assess their viability, what um, what sort of things do they need to consider that they might not have already thought of? Oh, we, um, my wife and I, had heaps of arguments over this in terms of costing and, and how much money we thought we were making and how much money we weren't making and, and, and was an event successful or not. Um, I think a couple of the things that it's your it's your twelve month or your fixed costs. I think people forget. Um, so like your insurance, like your yearly cost to every council because each council will ask for a fee um, to be registered with them. Um, so that fee might be $150. And if you do that across 15, 20 different councils, you know, there's two there's two or $3,000 that you probably haven't considered into your, into your weekly budget for your event. Um, then you've got your insurance, your vehicle insurance, fuel to get backwards and forwards, how much your timber costs to buy, to put in your smoker or if you're using charcoal. Um, it's not just about going and buying a brisket and selling 50 sandwiches with that one brisket. There's your insurance, your food safety supervised certification, your event fees, your fuel costs getting to and from the event. Um, and then one thing we um, – learned very quickly was just to write it all down and break it down over a weekly weekly budget. So it's 52 weeks in a year, total up all the costs and ensure that we're making money over that, that period to cover all that cost. Yeah, right. Okay, so the, uh, the, the long-term costs often get overlooked for the day-to-day costs. Yeah, for your week costs. So the person that's doing the market on the weekend probably doesn't really consider the insurance as a big aspect of their cost, but um, it can be. Yeah, right. Okay. So um, we briefly mentioned uh, types of events before. Um, which are the best types of events from a business perspective and why? Uh, the events where people show up. <laughs> I think the best events for us are um, the afternoon, mid-afternoon, to dinner time events where you get a lunchtime and a dinner time rush. Um, those are for us are, are probably the biggest viable and the best events to go to. And the two day events, so the Friday, Saturday, or the Saturday, Sunday events where you set up once, you break down once, you cook in the same place, and um, you've got an opportunity. The first day you cover your costs, the second day you make money. Um, whereas if you do two events, where you've got to set up and break down. You've got to pay people to do that. You've got you know, your labour costs there to, to set up and break down. You've got to travel to your other event. You've got to set up and cook again. You've got two event fees. 
um, everything sort of doubled, um, if you will. Whereas if you can set up for the one event fee over the two days um, and get a lunchtime and a dinner service on both days, they're the best event for us. Yeah, right. I hadn't uh, that hadn't occurred to me about the whole two days thing. That's that's really interesting. So, yeah. um, so what's been your your biggest challenge, and how did you overcome it? Uh, well, we bought a food bus, um, which was an old nineteen ninety six Mercedes Benz bus. It wasn't fitted out. Um, it was just a, a bus that was sort of empty, um, so we had to get that built. Um, the biggest challenge for us has been the mechanical viability of the bus. Ooh. Um, so I think that's another thing that people probably overlook. And I think um, – well, I won't say everyone overlooks it. We probably overlooked it. No one else probably has. But um, we, want, we wanted a retro-looking older bus because we wanted it to be funky. We wanted it to be – you know, um, a little bit quirky, I guess. Um, so if we had our time again, though, we'd probably buy something younger, um, if not new, and, um, and and take that issue of the mechanical viability of the bus out. Because, you know, my biggest concern every time I get in the bus and drive is, am I going to make it to the event? Um, oh, okay. If I don't make it there, I don't make any money. If I break down, it's going to cost me money. So it's um, a sort of two-edged sword. Mm, hence, hence why at the top of the interview you were saying that the bus has been in the shed for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I was driving to an event. Uh, I spoke earlier, Ben, about an event we did out in Mudgee where we did 600-odd plates um, and 100 beef ribs. Well, that weekend I was actually meant to take the bus there, but the bus broke down on the way there. Um, so I had to put it on a truck, get it back to where we live, unload everything onto our trailer and into the car, and then drive out to Mudgee and cook for the event the next day. So, you know, we still did the event, but certainly um, wasn't how we wanted to do the event. Um, it still ended up being successful, albeit we had the, the underlying cost of the bus maintenance or the bus mechanical failure um, that we didn't get it there. Oh, mate, that must just be heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it has been, it has been a, um, a challenge this year. We've, we've certainly, um, you know, you know, works good and, and we love what we do um, and we wouldn't change it for the world. Um, you know, we get to work closer together, my wife and I. Um, we're with our kids more now than we ever before. Um, but the, the the 10 steps forward, three or four, five, six steps back when, when the bus breaks down or when the event doesn't do it real well, um, you're still moving forward but you're probably not moving forward at the, at the pace you expected. And, um, yeah, that's been probably the hardest thing for us this year has been that mechanical reliability of the bus. Dealing with that kind of frustration has to be a bit of a bit of a challenge just in and of itself just to stay motivated, wouldn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, mate. I, um, I've learned a lot about Mercedes-Benz engines. <laughs> I don't know. We, I, look on, I look at everything as a challenge and everything as a, as a way of learning and, and moving forward. And, and I guess um, – we always have plans of expanding into Newcastle and setting up permanently down there. Um, and I guess we probably weren't looking at doing that until mid-next year. But I guess the reliability of your bus is probably just has bring that forward. Mm. Um, we made the decision a long time ago to set the trailer up. We bought a car trailer and we're setting it up as a catering trailer um, so that if the bus wasn't going to be there, we could, take, we could still go and cook. We could cook out of the trailer. Um, so we gave ourselves some business um, 
um, options, if you will, in terms of if one failed, the other one will still work. If they both work and we do two events and double up. Yep, yep. Uh, so we've, you know, we've, we've learned a lot and we've certainly put ourselves in a good position to be successful. Um, but there has been those times where we've been frustrated and wanted to argue and kill each other, but we've, you know, we've pulled our, pulled our heads up, chins up and kept going. Yeah, yeah. So can the can the bus be stripped out to go into the bricks and mortar when you get that done? Uh, it can be. Uh, it won't be, um, but it could be, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so our, our bricks and mortar is going to be a little bit different. Um, uh, so, yeah, we um, stay tuned and watch this space. But, yeah, we, you know, we're not going to be uh, um, bricks and mortar as, as what people think. We're going to be something a little bit different to that. But, yeah, so... Um, it, uh, we're going to we're going to require the bus for a little bit longer yet. Well, I'm I'm, I'm uh, certainly looking forward to it. My my curiosity is peaked. So, <laughs> what has been your biggest success then, and to what do you attribute it? Oh, business success to us um, was getting through the first twelve months. Um, we sort of set ourselves a goal: if we can do it for twelve months, we can do it for ten years. Um, you know, it's not easy. Um, I start my food preparation on a Wednesday um, I'll do a few things Thursday I'll pack all the gear up um, Friday we're cooking Saturday we're cooking and serving Sunday we're cooking and serving um, I generally don't sleep from Friday morning until Sunday night when I get home so it's a it's sort of 40 odd hours of straight just hard yakka um, oh wow but the business success for us was getting through the first 12 months um, having regular clientele, um, still getting inquiries, still getting events booked for next year, um, knowing that we can make this a viable business. That, that, was a, that was probably the biggest success for us then, was just simply setting ourselves a goal of 12 months, still being here, still, still pushing on, still making money, um, and we've done that. And, um, you know, and on, on top of that, we've been able to keep the family together. Um, we've been renovating our house. Um, making it more comfortable for ourselves, and you now we had we've been able to have a six-week vacation back in Texas. We um, we've taken the kids with us to a few events. They come with us to our cooking comps and and are right there with us. Um, it's every step of the way. So then I'll keep the family together and, and get through the first four months. Mate, it uh, sounds like you've nailed it to me. Mm. <laughs> so all things considered. How would you rate being a caterer? Well, being a caterer is awesome. Like it is really, really good fun. Um, I meet a lot of different people. I get to cook at a lot of different events and, and some beautiful, beautiful places in the world. Um, but at the same token, um, being a, a Texas barbecue caterer, um, it's hard work. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's fantastic. It's awesome, but it's very, very hard work doing this style of food and cooking at multiple events a weekend. You, you just, you don't get any time. So, but, you know, we still do it, still love it. You're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pit master, Ben Arnott. It's nice to see businesses out there that see the problems in the world and seek to solve them. Clean Heat Barbecue is one of these businesses. A charcoal and briquette manufacturer, Clean Heat prides themselves on being the most eco-friendly brand on the market today. 
Harvesting from an invasive species that's destroying valuable farmland in Namibia, Clean Heat Barbecue's products are sustainable, eco-friendly, 100% natural and renewable. Most importantly for barbecue enthusiasts, their products are clean burning and long lasting. It is the fuel of choice for many top barbecue teams in Australia, and Clean Heat Barbecue is known for being strong supporters of the Australian barbecue scene, sponsoring several competitions every season. At Clean Heat Barbecue, their motto is the four Fs, fire, food, and friendship. When those three come together, you'll be fueling your passion. To find your local distributor of Clean Heat Barbecue products, follow Clean Heat Charcoal on Facebook at Clean Heat BBQ and on Instagram at Clean underscore Heat Charcoal and send Abel a PM. Alrighty, Rob, thank you for sticking around. We do have one more segment before I let you go back to your lovely family, and that is listener question time. So some fans out there have rung up and recorded some questions for you. So I'm going to put them to you now and, uh, and you can answer them for us. Hi, this is Matt from the Mid-North Coast. Just a question for Rob. Seeing you're so busy with your vending and catering, if you could only do three competitions in 2018, what would they be and why? Thanks. Bye. Uh, three comps in 2018. Um, I'll definitely do um, uh, Just Smoking in Gloucester. Um, I think it's the best comp on the circuit. Um, it's a quaint little comp, really well run. Um, and uh, I really enjoy getting up there and hanging out with the boys. Um, I'd like to do Port Macquarie this year. I didn't get there this year um, due to other events and, and catering, but I'd like to do Port Macquarie next year in 2018. Uh, it's another great comp. And uh, and thirdly, um, I'd like to do uh, Meatstock Sydney. I, I did Meatstock Melbourne last or this year, um, but I'd like to do Meatstock Sydney. I think that'd be a, a good close event, really big, lots of people. And um, you know, uh, there'd be an opportunity for us to get down there and, 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 um, and compete against the big boys on a big stage. Hi, Rob. Ben from Newcastle here. Just wondering how you handle things like leftovers and how that affects budgeting. Cheers. Uh, budgeting, well, if I have leftovers, um, my kids eat pulled pork and brisket and, uh, and ribs for the week. Um, no, but it, it, it hurts the bottom line. Um, I generally um, can't reuse it um, if, it, you know, say it's on a on a Wednesday. I have worked out a pretty good reheating system. Um, if it's cooked fresh and I haven't used it, I can fry back it, um, refrigerate it, and reheat it. But certainly once it's cut or pulled um, and and been reheated, I, I can't reuse it, so it just gets thrown out. So certainly does hurt the bottom line, but that all comes down to just having a goal of maximum amount of plates you want to sell for the day. Um, at each event, going off what the promoters said people are going to be there and then really just aiming for that and, and, and being comfortable that you've sold out and, and uh, you've done all you can so you don't have too many leftovers. Are there any rules about things like um, like giving them away? Like can you donate them to like a homeless food van or something? Yeah. Like uh... After after Burley Head this year, we donated a, a heap of stock um, up there um, just um, had far too much of a, a few things, and we certainly did donate a lot of food um, into the surf club and also to a couple of charity organisations. So yeah, we certainly can. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I I hate to hear about all these uh, all this food just going in the bin. It just breaks my heart. Yeah, no, we um, there's a couple of guys in Newcastle that got a really good system too, and they um, they donate a lot of food when they haven't sold it. 
Um, we we tend to haven't had that problem a lot, but we have had a couple of events, and we certainly do um, try and donate and make for a child away. Beautiful. Hi, this is Andrew from Ipswich. I'd like to ask Rob, which of the traditional U.S. flavor profiles seem to do best with Aussie patrons, like Texas versus Kansas City? Thanks. Well, I think um, I think the Texas flavors do really well with with, with, with Australian patrons. Um, simple flavors, salt and pepper on brisket with a nice sauce. Um, I think it's just um, we're learning. Um, how to cook barbecue in Australia and people are learning how to eat it and appreciate it. Um, and you're trying to sell food to a clientele that hasn't or most of the time probably hasn't been to these places. So I think simple flavours work the best um, in introducing them to um, barbecue, low and slow barbecue, because of that smoke factor. Um, I think if, you, if you're going to you know, use salt and pepper, the other sort of ingredient you have is that iron bark smoke or fruit wood smoke that you're using um and some people might not like that but if you can subtly introduce the smoke and some nice other flavors with it um i think that's the that's the, that's why it works so well when i when we sell it to the public here hi it's dion from the mid north coast new south wales uh rob what do you consider the essentials for when designing a uh, catering rig thanks oh um, bench space. Um, uh, if I'm doing private parties where I'm going to have to punch out a lot of plates or um, do meat platters or um, any pasta platters, um, bench space, um, you, an oven with a with a stove top. Um, obviously, two good sinks uh, for cleaning up and for rinsing. Uh, and I, the last thing for us, which has been a godsend in, in our barbecue. Um, it's been a deep fryer. Um, that just opens up the doors of so many more things that you can do quickly. Um, and when you're catering for 150 people and you've got to get 100 serves out, um, it certainly does, um, when you're talking canapes and things like that, um, having a deep fried option on the menu, um, it certainly does allow, it just opens up so many avenues. Now we were talking before about um, about buses and trailers. It, are there any advantages of one over the other? Um, the the issue with the bus is that um, you can't work back to back very easily because it is narrower than a trailer. Um, the New South Wales road rules uh, regulation for trailers say so you can go to two point five meters. As soon as you go to two point five meters. You can have two people work back to back, and that allows you to have more people in more space. Whereas with the bus, it's long, but you struggle to have that person back to back. Um, so it sort of does inhibit um, how fast you can work. Oh, an interesting thought. I'd, I'd that had never actually uh, never occurred to me. Yeah, it's just it's just that space, like that width space that you miss out on, because um, with a trailer. You know, your average bench space is 600 mil. So as soon as you do 600, 600, it's 1.2. It gives you about, you know, one and a bit metres between. So two people can work comfortably back to back. Um, um, whereas with the bus, it's a bit narrow. It's only about 2.2. So you, you only really get the walkway where one person can comfortably work. Um, we've still got three or four different workstations in the bus, 
in a trailer, you can certainly get a lot more. This is Mark from Smartfire, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. All right, well, we're very nearly done, Rob. Now, before I let you go, what would be your top three pieces of advice for people looking to open their own barbecue catering business? Um, really budget everything. Um, think of those costs that you just haven't thought of. Um, uh, every event you're going to do, add four or 500 bucks to the, to, the, to the bottom line of your expense to ensure that you've just covered things off that you may have forgotten that you haven't really thought about. Um, because they're there and you'll have to go and buy it. Um, second one, really have a good product before you start. Um, there's a lot of people out there um, cooking any sort of cuisine and selling it to the public, and it, it isn't great. Uh, it's good, but it's not great. Um, to be viable, it's sustainable, it's got to be really, really good. It's got to be, you know, especially I think with, with low and slow barbecue, you can really turn people off pretty quickly if you've got a poor product. Um, and thirdly, just it's hard work, so be ready to, to be ready to pull your sleeves up and just keep going. Because um, if you've got to cook for an event and they're expecting you to serve for 100 people, um, you can't just give up halfway through. You've got to keep pushing through regardless of what the weather is, regardless of how you're feeling. Um, you've got to have a backup plan because if you're sick, the wedding's still going to go ahead and someone's got to cook for you. Oh, interesting point. Yeah, what, what happens when, when Rob is sick? Uh, well, I've got um, a few good mates that um, I can call upon. Um, so, Keith Sutherland from Because Brisket's done a few events for me. Um, not because I've been sick, but because I've been away. Um, um, Dion, um, Alan, and, and, and Matt Den from Camatose Barbecue from Gloucester. Um, you know, they've always offered if I if I end up falling ill or hurt myself that I can come down and, and help me out. So, I've got a fairly good backup system in terms of people, um, but certainly. Um, if I fall over and can't run the smoker, um, my wife she can run a she can run an offset, so um, she can cook, and uh, and that's sort of our backup plan is is me, then my wife, and then we start calling friends. Wow, so it's it's you and then the family and then the barbecue family. That's it, mate. Yep, we're all pretty close. Yeah. Alrighty, Rob, the show is now yours, my friend. Take a few minutes and uh, give some shout outs to the people that have helped you along the way, and tell the listeners where they can track you down. Oh, well, the biggest shout-out would be my wife. Um, she's just as crazy as I am. Um, so, Randy, thanks very much. Um, uh, who I learn off, uh, Melvin Young um, from Arlington, Texas. Uh, Johnny Lee Johnson from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, those two blokes, without them, I probably would never have ever done this. Um, certainly wouldn't have learnt what I learnt and, and had the style of cooking that I, I have, have now. And then uh, where people can find me, uh, Hunter Valley, um, Newcastle, keep an eye on Facebook. We're coming at you. Awesome, mate. Thank you so much. Look, I'd, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'd, I can uh, I can hear in the background, it must be the kids' dinner time now. So I will let you go and uh, undoubtedly prepare them a bit of brisket or something on the side. It is actually they're going to have brisket tonight because that's what's in the fridge. Love it. Well, once again, mate, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, best of luck getting that uh, getting that shop set up in Newcastle. No worries. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks for having me. There it is, folks. You've heard Rob neglect his kids for over an hour to bring you all the tips and tricks you need to get your dream business up off the ground. I'm joking. He didn't neglect his kids. Don't call docs.
but do jump onto Facebook and Instagram and follow him to keep up with his adventures. He puts out some of the best queue around and spends quite a bit of time stateside, so that's always fun to watch. Episode 3 is virtually a sequel to this episode, so you can't miss it. I'll give you a hint. He has the most recognisable hands in Aussie barbecue. That's right, the one and only Hillbilly Wes from legendary Sydney barbecue joint Bovine and Swine swings by the confessional to talk about life as a restaurateur. The good, the bad and the ugly, Wes holds nothing back in this epic episode as he pulls back the curtain on what it's like to run a bricks and mortar barbecue joint. Big thanks and much gratitude go out to this episode's sponsors, Jagged Wood-Fired Smoker Ovens, Pitt Brothers Barbecue and Clean Heat Charcoal. Their support makes this project possible. I've put their links in this episode description, so please click through to their sites to learn more. If you have a message you'd like to get out to a barbecue mad audience, send me an email directly at ben at smokinghotconfessions.com. Shoutouts also have to go to those who called in and left questions for Rob. Andrew, Benton, Dion, and Matt. I loved listening to your questions, and I know Rob loved answering them. If you'd like more, I have published a free ebook just for you. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. I've put a link in the description. Also, head on over to Facebook and join the Smoking Hot Confessions community and let's continue the conversation. It's a group dedicated to teaching, learning and sharing all about barbecue and all the BS is left at the door. Everybody has a place in the Smoking Hot Confessions community. Finally, however you're listening to this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. This helps the Owls bring news of this podcast to more listeners in more wizarding schools all around the world. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions.